Hello and welcome to the third edition of the Sea Mills and Coomdingle Community Podcast. I'm Mary Milton, the Project Coordinator for Sea Mills 100. This edition's a little bit different. We'll be talking to some of the volunteers who've been recording the oral history interviews you've been listening to in the last couple of episodes. Way back in 2019, a group of us received some training in oral history interviewing and recording from Julia Letts. We'd totally recommend her, by the way, for any other project considering recording oral histories. We've conducted quite a few interviews so far, and we'll do some more when conditions allow again, when the risk of COVID-19 is over. We also work with a couple of members of a group who've been recording histories around the Lower Seven Vale for a project called A Forgotten Landscape. One of their volunteers features in our first recording. We start by talking to Jackie Rinaldi about how she came to be at our open oral history recording session in a mobile recording studio, aka the Ark Project's camper van, outside Seamills Methodist Church. Well, I've been volunteering on a couple of other projects, capturing people's recollections of times gone by and sharing them through CDs and with local history groups. Uh, But I'd heard about this fabulous project at Sea Mills where the community is recording memories of their life and popping them into a wind-up recorder in a telephone box. And then others can come along, wind up the recorder and listen to times gone by. It sounded a really original idea and I really wanted to get involved So I was really happy to help out, Mary, when you asked me along. I pitched up that morning outside the Methodist church and literally we stopped people in the street as they were passing and asked them to share memories. Some people are always more willing than others to share, aren't they? But everyone's history is really interesting. Yeah, we got really lucky that day. We had lots of people popping by to talk to us. What aspects of people's histories do you find most interesting? Well, it's funny, but personally, I love the tales of everyday home and everyday working life. Big historical events like the war, Concord, first flights, that sort of thing. You know, they're really well documented, Mary. You can just Google them. You get the dates, you get the information and stuff. But it's just more and more it's crossed my mind that we forget that what seems quite an ordinary life soon passes down into history and then looking back on it it becomes fascinating and yet you were living it every day so for example on that really cold November day uh, we met June Williams she was really pleased to share her memories with us thankfully Uh, but Mary we were really glad that you'd organized for us to sit in the community van that day Um, We were up by the play area listening to the children playing. They were outside and we were inside in the warm. It was really chilly. So we both clambered in and June filled me in about her early life in Sea Mills, how she'd grown up in Sea Mills during the war, the bombings, her teenage years round and about Sea Mills and the cinemas and meeting her husband. And then I started to ask about her daily work in the 50s, how she'd come out of the Portway School and she was living in Seamills and where she'd gone off to work from Seamills. I was working at the BBC when I got married. Um, I went there when I was 15 
and I stayed there until three weeks before my first child was born. But my brother said if she didn't leave, that baby's going to be born at the BBC. <laughs> what memories of the BBC do you have? Oh gosh, so many very memories. It was I was very lucky to work there because it was right at the start of the Natural History Unit, which is obviously world famous now, mm. but they were just starting out then. Um, and they also were starting television, so we had a big television studio there. And um, if anybody interesting uh, to us girls was, we were down in the in the studio, the engineers would phone up and say, "Frankie Vaughan's down in the studio," or "Jimmy Young's down there." And we used to rush down. And I remember Jimmy Young invited us in, and um, well, none of us fancied him. We had an awful wig. <laughs> he said, "Come on, girls," and we stood around the piano, and he sang to us. But Frankie Vaughan was, do you remember Frankie Vaughan? Yeah, he was lovely, he was quite shy. We just stood outside and watched him, and I remember him coming out and he's saying, Hi, girls, as he came out. We were like, Ooh! Benny Hill used to come in a lot. Bob Munkhouse used to come in a lot. And uh, you could go down to get your coffee or and be stood in, in between a whole cast of um, television actors in all their dresses that were doing the serial, you know, which I had probably typed the script for. You see... Suddenly, an ordinary life is just so special. So many characters who have passed down into TV history. And there is June from Sea Mills having her lunch with them and typing out the scripts for them. What a time she must have had. There's a whole generation already who have no concept of what June's working life would have been like how she jumped on a bus, how she get, had to get down to Clifton, a whole life before computers. I wondered how June, who was educated at the Portway, had actually trained for the job, how she'd ended up leaving C Mills and in the Natural History Unit at the BBC as it was all starting off. Well, we didn't have electric typewriters. We pounded machines, you know, but... Because what I was typing was always very interesting, I didn't mind it because, you know, it was, um, I don't know how many times I typed the hand of the Baskervilles, which was a Sherlock Holmes thing, you know, and um, just typing uh, television plays. We used to do schedules sometimes, but the short stories, it was just all interesting stuff, you know, I could never work in an ordinary office. So when I, my son was born, I never went back to work, um, I went into schools after that. It seems strange now, but most women gave up work like June did when children came along. She went back to work eventually, working in schools, I guess, because that sort of fitted in with her job at home looking after the children. But I guess, Mary, with no childcare, uh, with no nurseries like we have today, how would women have continued their careers? Yeah, I suppose unless you've got somebody else at home to look after the kids there's less opportunity isn't there for those women also I think just that was what was expected of, of women there it wasn't expected that they would go back to work it was expected that that they would be at home to look after the children and that's what the children needed yeah and she clearly like June really thrived on that time in her life um a time when you know it was just her and she talked about going to the cinema in the evening later on in the interview with me. Um, very happy days for her, I think. The other thing that really impresses me, actually, about um, June is quite a few of the other women I've spoken to, they 
all went to different schools and Portway was the school that you went to if you didn't pass the 11 plus generally. So the women that you hear of who've gone on and had careers um, and done those kind of things are often those women who passed the 11 plus and went somewhere like Red Maids and then became teachers or, or did other things that were sort of socially acceptable for, for women to do as jobs then. June went to Portway, which has then led on to other things for her. That's very impressive, actually. She certainly made the most of those opportunities, didn't she, going down, you know, to the BBC. And what a fascinating time that must have been. She really comes alive when she talks about it. She paints yeah. a fantastic picture of, you know, being around the piano being sung to as, yeah. a, as a young girl. Makes me laugh as well, some of the comments that the men made, you know, hello girlies and waving at them. I don't suppose they'd have got away with an awful lot of that these days as well. Kind of what's acceptable language these days is was not the same, was it, back in the 50s? No, absolutely. Did, did she tell you more about what she did for work? Yes, I was interested in how she'd started off uh, back in the 50s straight from school. I went into the post room where you would sort the post and deliver it to the offices. And that was interesting because you went into every office and got to know everybody, you know. There was no snobbery there. I mean, there were a lot of very well-educated people there. Nearly all the girls came from Clifton High School or something like that. Was mm. I went to Portway School. Um, but there was, there was never any snobbery there. They were all lovely. Mm. And then one day I was called up to the office. and I, I think you could, you could stay there as a junior until you were 18 and then you had to leave. Um, but somehow or other, my face fitted, and when I was about 17, maybe 16, um, they called me into personnel and said, um, June, we want to send you to secretarial school, will you go? And I said, well, I don't mind doing typing, but I'm not doing shorthand, because I tried that at, work, at school and I didn't like it. They said, well, will you go and do typing? I said, yeah, OK. So they sent me to night school, and um, I learned to type and to call my exams. And when I was 18, out of the blue... Uh, copy typing job turned up so I was really lucky mm. happy days happy days yeah mm. that's what I love about oral history recordings everyone has wonderful stories to tell of everyday life that we now find really fascinating and interesting isn't it that it was the company themselves it was the BBC that approached her and they saw something in June that was clearly quite unique that they would pay for her to go to night school in the evening. Don't suppose they gave day release in those days. They would have had to have done it in their own time, I guess. Thank you very much, Jackie, for uh, giving us example of your morning in the van with June. It's a really, really lovely piece. And um, I hope people have enjoyed listening to it. Yeah, I expect working at the BBC is a little bit different nowadays, particularly as a lot of people will be working from home and um, on their computers at home. Uh, you can hear more of June's tales in our other podcasts. As a more recent resident of Seamills, one of the things that really interests me is other people's reasons for moving here, particularly those first residents. What brought them here? First-hand accounts are rare, but writer and broadcaster Derek Robinson remembers his parents talking about moving to Seamills in its very early days. My father is from uh, Northumberland, and my mother is from the, the south of Scotland, Berwickshire. They came south in the 1920s, really because there was no work in the north of England. 
Uh, he had been a drummer in a pit orchestra that came to an end when silent films came to an end. He saw the opportunity of playing uh, percussion in the Bristol City Police Band. So he came south and joined it. I don't think he expected to be a policeman uh, in particular. He expected to be a musician, but he ended up as a policeman musician. I think probably because he was a policeman, it gave him some kind of priority in getting a, a, a council house, which were in considerable demand. Uh, and uh, they moved in at a time when really the houses had just been finished. And my mother said that she looked out of a window and saw nothing but a sea of mud everywhere. The hedges hadn't grown, uh, the grass was non-existent, and she said to herself, what have I done <laughs> leaving Scotland? But she um, stuck it out and uh, lived there for the rest of her life. That always seems to me a very uh, graphic interpretation of the mud and what seamills must have been like way back in those days. Those recollections, I think, will be very similar to anybody's who has lived on a new build estate, uh, even today. Well, I'm joined now by two of our volunteers, Claire and Mandy, who've also been recording interviews with some of the earliest residents of Seamills. Claire, I, I know that one of the people you interviewed was uh, Stan. He's in his 90s and has lived in Seamills for most of his life. How did you find that experience of recording Stan? Um, I loved talking to Stan. He had so many things to talk about. And he was always um, had such a sense of humour about all the things that he could remember, uh, which was absolutely clear as, you know, it could have been yesterday, the stories he was telling me. He can remember really far back, can't he? I, I don't think I've heard, um, I don't think I've heard anything earlier as a first-hand recollection of Seamills. The start of the interview, he was telling me about his earliest memories when Seamills uh, started to be built. My first memories of Seamills was as a child living in High Grove and going upstairs into the bedroom and watching the builders construct the houses that are now in Westbury Lane. The building material was delivered by horse and cart. The horses would drag the cart into position and when required, uh, they could move the cart backwards by stepping backwards and pushing the cart into the required position. Also, uh, of the uh, bricklayers throwing bricks in pairs, one to the other, rather than carrying them to the stack. Occasionally, the catcher would drop the bricks and that would cause me to laugh as well as there uh, enjoying the fun. Also watching the bricklayers climbing the ladder, carrying bricks on their shoulders and climbing the ladder using one hand. They had something on their shoulders that 
bricks rested in. I think they called it a hod. I love that clip of Stan speaking about his earliest memories. It just takes you right back because he speaks in such detail about everything. You can really picture what it was actually like for him. I've got this image of him as a, as a small child, barely able to see over the window ledge, looking down at the builders and having a jolly good giggle every time they drop something. It's very, yeah, you're right. It's very, very vivid. I've also got Mandy with me and she's also done a number of interviews with some of the earliest residents of Seamills. I know one of your first ones was with Joan, whose parents moved into a brand new council house in Seamills in the 1920s. Yes, that's right. I was looking forward to meeting Joan and she had, I think she was looking forward to the interview as well because she had loads of photographs ready for me to look at so that I could visualise what she was talking about. She was very interesting and she had um, the pictures, you know, the ones of the family at the gate, but behind that were the houses and they had shutters originally, but they were removed during the war because they were such a hard work to maintain. And I suppose you couldn't get the, you know, stuff to sort of varnish them with and that. Anyway, you can still see bolt holes in some of the walls where the shutters had been. Right at the start of the interview with Joan, she told me about her parents getting the house in Sea Mills when her mother was heavily pregnant with her. It was a brand new house. My parents moved in to 23 West Parade three weeks before I was born. And it was a brand new house. And the first time they'd ever had electricity or anything like that, they'd been living in a tiny flat somewhere or other in Clifton. And um, they were thrilled to bits to have a house. And the hedges were all new. Were the hedges put in by the council? Yeah, yeah. And they were maintained by the council. You look at this picture here on the front of this thing. See how neat everyone's hedges were the same. The council used to do the hedges and the grass. And so everywhere was the same. And if you were in a council house, which we were, if you didn't keep your garden and everything done, you would be in trouble. So that was Joan talking about her parents' first home in Seamills. Perhaps it's just me, but I could detect that thrill of excitement Joan's parents had at having their own house. And this was echoed in lots of interviews that we recorded in the project, particularly amongst newlyweds who often waited two or three years before they got their own front door. Now I'm going to bring Claire back into the conversation as we've got another bit of the interview that you did with Stan to share. Um, I have to say this was a description that we all found familiar from places we've lived at at various times in our lives. It was later in Stan's life when he moved into what he describes as a concrete house. It's one of the Dorlonco houses in Sea Mills, which is a, a steel frame with a concrete shell around it, which um, has often been talked about in the project. Claire? Oh, I love this part of Stan talking about bath time. You can hear the humour in his voice as he's telling it. And the story tells you about living conditions at the time that I don't know if anybody, anyone wants to go back to. Yeah, it was in a cul-de-sac. Uh, it was one of the, uh, the concrete houses. It was where you could have a hot bath and a cold shower all in the same <laughs> operation because the water used to condense on the ceiling and then drip cold into the hot water. 
<laughs> one of the chief tools that you took into the bathroom with you was a sponge on a long, a long-handled sponge so that you could wipe the, the, the ceiling dry to avoid the dripping cold water coming on you whilst you were enjoying a nice hot bath. I think that's very ingenious, having a sponge on a long pole. It, it solved the problem in a very low-tech way. I'm with Mandy, Jackie and Claire, who have done lots of recordings between them for the Seamills 100 project. We had a bit of training right at the beginning of the project where it was just an idea of going and talking to people and learning things about Seamills over the years. How's it gone for all you guys? Has it been what you imagined it would be and what have you got out of it? I was never very good at history. I'm not very interested in it. But having spoken to Stan, it really brought so many things alive that I hadn't really been very interested in before, you know, the way that people lived. The reason I got into that project was I had been talking to some older people who wanted to leave their memories for their grandchildren and so on to listen to the stories of their lives. And they didn't know how to do it. And so that's really how I got involved, because I, I was interested in facilitating the things that they wanted to do with that. I know you're not living in Sea Mills now, but you were living a bit more locally when you made that recording with Stan. Did that make a difference, that it was so, it was an area that you knew a little bit? Uh, yes, it, I probably only knew one or two roads. And so by the time I'd finished talking to Stan, I felt as if I knew the whole area, even if it didn't look like that anymore. You know, I could picture certain things happening. And um, he talked once about the doctor leaving prescriptions by his front door and I was thinking how similar that is to the situation now when you don't actually go into the doctors but they do leave things for you to or you ring a bell and somebody gives it to you so you know how it's sort of come around full circle almost. That's interesting and a, and a lot of the things that I've spoken to people about as well it is kind of we're rediscovering things like our green spaces which are very important to us in Sea Mills that's something also that a lot of older people talk about enjoying. Mandy, how, how did the experience go for you? Well, I really enjoyed talking to older people. Of course, it was my job working with the elderly and being older myself now. And I, think, I feel as though there's a real rich resource there that's getting lost. I so wish that I could go back in time and talk to my own family. And I felt that it was important, really. And it's important for people to know what it was like. So different, really, from today. Let's hope that, you know, it's not lost forever. Do you think the people you spoke to enjoyed putting their memories on tape as well? I do. Presumably they wouldn't have done it if they didn't want to do it. But, um, yes, I felt as though they got a lot out of it as well. Um, and But the more interviews that I did, the more I felt um, I felt they were going better for me anyway, but um, I was getting more sort of confident in what I was doing. It's a big ask, isn't it, that we're, we're asking people to sit down and spend an hour or so with us and, and give, give them their memories and, and their time. But also it's a learning curve for us, isn't it? I mean, most of us hadn't done a great deal of that before and it was the, the project that, that let us do it. It was a privilege, really, to listen to other people's memories and, you know, which possibly are quite personal to themselves. Yes, definitely. And I, th I think you wanted to do the best job of capturing their memories 
as you could you know almost humble when people start to open up to you and um you know you may never have met this person before and then suddenly there you are and in this particular instance you know on a chilly day in a van and somebody's literally throwing themselves back in their mind and there's that moment for me when actually it's irrelevant that you're there or the van's there or the playground and I was talking to June and there were several moments in the interview where I thought she's actually there in the cinema queue she can remember all of the prices and where she used to sit and who she was sat with and then there was another moment when she was talking back in the BBC she was actually in that moment um and it's just such a revelation when that happens that somebody is almost reliving through talking to you important times in their life that there was no reason they should have necessarily thought of them that particular day but there they are suddenly in the front of their mind it's just such a privilege Thank you all of you for taking part in the project and thank you to all of our participants as well who've who've given their time to tell us their memories. We're still looking for more people, so if any of you out there want to let us record your memories, please get in touch. Well, if this has inspired you to do some interviewing or record your own memories, why not have a go? It's a wonderful thing to do for your friends and family. If you'd like to do this as part of the Seamills 100 project or want some advice, you can get in touch with us via email. Info at seamills100.co.uk Or if you're listening on the standalone player, speak to the person who delivered it to you and we'll put you in touch. If being recorded really isn't your thing, we're also collecting written memories and photographs. You can see some already on our website and there'll be a book available in spring 2021 featuring some of the stories we've gathered so far. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please spread the word about it and remember we can deliver it on a really easy to use standalone player within Seamills and Coombe Dingle for those without internet access. The Seamills 100 project has been funded by the Heritage Lottery Fund and Bristol City Council and it's run by Seamills Community Initiatives. We hope you'll listen next time. And for now, I'll leave all you budding oral history interviewers with these words of encouragement from our team. Well, if you're thinking of doing it, have a go. I mean, what's the worst that can happen? You do one and decide it's not for you, Um, you know. I'm sure with Mandy and Claire, I was terrified the first time. You're worried about pressing the wrong button, deleting somebody's history. You know, we've done it all, haven't we? But it's always worth doing. You never regret a moment of doing it. So give it a go, I'd say. And I think we could only capture one particular aspect in an or in an hour. And we could have gone back there several times and talked about so many other different things. And it would have been equally as fascinating. Everybody's got a story. Sometimes it's difficult to get certain people's histories. It's difficult to get women's histories in particular. Sometimes people sort of self-screen and think their lives aren't interesting. But really, everything's interesting. It's just finding the right way to tell that story. Mm